Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to another RBT Sunday. Uh, this month, we're going to be reading through the first half of Matthew's Gospel together, from chapters 1 through to 13. And this morning, I'm just going to introduce it to us and try to highlight something of the overall message of the first half of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, now, there is a handout available in the email that went out yesterday, and you might find that to be a helpful reference this morning. And we've also put together a reading plan again this month, similar to the one that we did for Isaiah, and you can find that on the email as well. Most importantly of all, please do have Matthew open so that you can follow along as we highlight some parts of it this morning. Okay, Matthew's Gospel is of course written by Matthew, the former tax collector who was transformed by his encounter with Jesus and went on to become one of the 12 disciples. And his gospel is, of course, the first book in the New Testament, although probably not the first of the four gospels to be written. One question it might be helpful to ask as we start is why are there four gospels? Why are we doing RBT Matthew when we did RBT Mark almost precisely two years ago? Why do we need four accounts of Jesus's life? Well, the simplest answer is that God has given four different gospel accounts so that we might see Jesus four times more clearly. All four gospels, of course, describe the very same Jesus, and all of them contain eyewitness accounts of his life and ministry. And there's a fair amount of overlap between them too. But there are differences because each gospel writer has hand-picked elements of Jesus's words and works in order to bring out different themes and truths about Jesus. So that between them, the four gospels give us an even richer and more three-dimensional portrait of Jesus. It's as if the good news about him is like a multifaceted jewel that you can look at from different angles to see and appreciate even more of his glory and beauty. Each new angle entices us and enriches our understanding of him. Now, it might be a little bit overly simplistic to do this, but if you had to summarise and differentiate each gospel in a sentence, you could say that the emphasis of John's gospel is on Jesus as the Son of God. The emphasis of Luke's gospel is on Jesus as the son of man. Mark's focus and emphasis is on Jesus as the suffering servant. And Matthew's focus is on Jesus, the promised king. Matthew's gospel is very much a book about the king and his kingdom. And so we're going to draw out that theme this morning under four headings that will hopefully help us along the way as we read the first half of Matthew this month. We're going to see the arrival of the king, life in the kingdom, the kingdom in people's lives, and then responses to the king. So first of all then, the arrival of the king. This is chapters one to four. Every great book has a great beginning, I think. Some opening lines to capture the reader's attention and their imagination. Here's a few examples. I, I won't tell you the titles of the books, but I'm sure you'll agree that they, they sound enticing. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. All children except one grow up. Mr and Mrs Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. It was a bright, cold day in April 
and the clocks were striking thirteen. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. All engaging beginnings and great starts, but in contrast, the start of Matthew might at first appear to be the dullest possible beginning to any book we've ever read. The first 16 verses present us with an almost endless list of people's names and relations, and our temptation can be just to skip right over them to get to the real story. Except, of course, this opening genealogy is not a dull beginning at all, once we understand what's going on. Because it tells us right here at the start something vitally important about the person that this book is all about. That he stands in the royal line of David, King David, from whom God had promised that one day another king, the King of Kings, the Messiah, would come and reign on his throne forever. Matthew's opening paragraph then is nothing less than the long-awaited announcement of the arrival of the King. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, is finally here. And this list of names is, is telling us this, that the, that, that the promised king, the promised offspring of Abraham, has come to bless the nations. This is in fact perhaps the best beginning ever to a book. And the other thing to appreciate here about these opening verses is that they're saturated in Old Testament history. Every name in the list tells a different story. And that's especially significant in Matthew because more than any of the other three Gospels, this Gospel is positively dripping in references to the Old Testament. Matthew wants to show his readers again and again how Jesus really is the climax and the fulfilment of the whole of the Old Testament. All that God has been doing beforehand was preparing the way for this, for him, for Jesus. And this theme of Old Testament fulfilment continues straight on into the account of his birth in chapters 1 and 2. What Matthew does is recount five different episodes in quick succession, with each event being explicitly tied to an Old Testament word of prophecy or promise. You've just got to look out for Matthew's repeated phrase that all this is taking place to fulfil what the Lord had already spoken through the prophets. So first of all, there's the angelic announcement to Joseph, chapter 1, verse 18, fulfilling the words of Isaiah 7, that Mary's child will be Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin. Next, there's the Gentile Magi, the wise men from the east, come in search of the King of the Jews, fulfilling the promise of Isaiah 60, that the nations would come and worship him. And with that promise... There's the promise of Micah 5.2, that the shepherd king would be born in Bethlehem, which is exactly where they find him. Next, there's Jesus' family's escape to Egypt, fulfilling Hosea 11 verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Then there's the massacre of the baby boys in Bethlehem, fulfilling Jeremiah 31.15. And finally, there's the family's return to Nazareth, fulfilling the promise that he would be called a Nazarene. All of this in just the first two chapters, because Matthew wants his readers to see that Jesus really is the long-awaited fulfilment of all these ancient promises. But there's more. 
Because as Matthew makes clear, Jesus isn't just the fulfillment of specific promises, but of specific roles and events too. It's as if history itself has been carefully crafted and shaped to prepare for his coming, which of course it has. So for example, he is, as we've already said, the long-awaited king in David's line, a greater David. In chapters 3 and 4, we see that he's also the true and better Israel, as he resists the temptation in the wilderness, and as a result of his baptism, the heavens break open and everyone hears the Father's voice, declaring that this is his Son, in whom he is well pleased. Matthew also wants us to, wants to, to uh, join the dots for us to show us that Jesus is the new and better Moses. Moses, of course, being the figurehead of the old covenant that God gave to his people. Like Moses, Jesus was saved from a massacre as an infant. Like Moses, he came up out of Egypt. Like Moses, he passes through the waters of baptism, just as Moses passed through the Red Sea. Like Moses, he's in the wilderness for 40 days, just as Moses was there for 40 years. Matthew's even structured his gospel in such a way as to deliberately make this connection. So after the first four chapters that we're looking at right now, there are five main sections of teaching throughout the book, teaching from Jesus, to parallel the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. But Jesus is not just another Moses, of course. He's not just a like-for-like -like replacement. Now, Matthew wants his readers to see that he is the prophet greater than Moses, promised in Deuteronomy 18, who has come to establish a new and better covenant with his people, come to deliver them from a far greater slavery than the one that Moses uh, rescued Old Testament Israel from in Egypt, Jesus has come, chapter 1 verse 21, to save his people from their sins. All of this is bound up in Matthew's announcement of the arrival of the king. Now the question on everyone's lips, of course, whenever a new king or new ruler takes office, is what kind of king will they be? Who will he welcome? What will life be like under his rule? And it's these questions that begin to get answered in the second section of Matthew, in chapters 5 to 7, where Jesus begins to teach us about life in the kingdom. This is chapters 5 to 7, life in the kingdom. This section is best known, of course, as the Sermon on the Mount. Here Jesus takes his new followers up onto a hillside, rather like Moses, speaking from the mountain to the people, and Jesus begins to teach them about what it looks like to follow him and live in his kingdom. Now, while we can't possibly dig into everything in these three chapters this morning, there are, I think, two key passages that help us understand how to read and apply the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. The first of those two is the Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5. And the second is Jesus's words about fulfilling the law and the prophets that come a little later in the same chapter. So let's just look briefly at those two key passages in turn. First of all, the Beatitudes. They begin in chapter 5 verse 3 with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so on and so on. 
Here's the most important thing to understand about these Beatitudes. They are not entrance requirements to get you into the kingdom. They're not a new law you have to keep to earn your citizenship. No, on the contrary, they're a description of a people who recognise their bankruptcy. They're a description of a people who are willing to come to Jesus, recognising that they are morally and spiritually destitute before God, that they have no merit in themselves to offer him. Theirs, Jesus says, is the kingdom of heaven. God's blessing comes to those who understand their need of mercy, which tells us this is like no other kingdom. No wonder the people that were there that day, Matthew tells us, uh, were amazed at this teaching. People are still amazed today when they truly hear the good news about this king and his kingdom. It's an utterly countercultural, topsy-turvy, upside-down kingdom, utterly different to what every human heart would expect or design. Here is a king who has come not to reward loyal subjects, but to bless and to save rebels and nobodies, to welcome into his kingdom anyone who is willing to cast themselves guilty, hungry and empty on his mercy. This here is the nail in the coffin of all man-centred, works-based religion. That, that Those things are just not compatible with Jesus and his kingdom. And so it's no wonder that the Pharisees didn't like him. Entrance to the kingdom is not by works. It is only found by trusting in the mercy of the king. But, and this brings us to that second key passage for understanding chapters 5 to 7, it isn't that Jesus has come to overturn God's law, to throw it away or toss it in the bin as if it was unimportant. No, he says, chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Jesus hasn't come to discard God's law and everything else that was laid down in the Old Testament. No, he's come to fulfil every single part of it, every chapter, every sentence, every word in himself. Jesus is their complete fulfilment. He fulfills all the promises, all the events that foreshadowed him. He fulfills the sacrificial system, as we know later on, when he lays down his own life as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. He fulfills every command with his own perfect, sinless obedience to his Father. He fulfills the law on our behalf as our substitute righteousness, his obedience covering all of our disobedience. And he also fulfills the law and the prophets through his teaching as he deepens and completes our understanding of God's will and commands for his people. Jesus fulfills it all in every way. So then, how do we understand all that follows in the Sermon on the Mount? As Jesus goes on to talk about anger and lust and divorce and forgiveness and love for our enemies and so much more, how do we think about those things? Well, the Gospel Transformation Bible, I think, explains it so well and so succinctly. It says this, in short, the sermon shows us what life should look like for a heart that has been melted 
and transformed by the gospel of grace, while also making clear the true nature of God's standards of righteousness, high standards which mean that our right standing with God is ultimately dependent on the grace of the one who tells us of them. The sermon is not an instruction manual for winning God's favour, rather it describes how God wants those to live who have already been transformed by his grace, because they have understood their weakness and need for his mercy. Now one more thing to notice as we read this section, this second section this month, is that at the heart of all of this there is a relationship. The call to obedience in Jesus' sermon is not a call into slavery, but a call into embracing the freedom of a restored relationship with God. It's an invitation to draw near to our Heavenly Father, to rest in his loving care. It teaches us how to love God and our neighbour from the heart, and it invites us to delight ourselves in the service of the King and to grow in his image and likeness. But it all begins with making the right response to Jesus. Which is why Jesus ends his sermon with a series of appeals. Chapter 7 verses 13 to 27, he appeals to his listeners to enter by the narrow gate, to bear good fruit, to build their house upon the rock of what he says, to trust and follow him. Because the mere arrival of the king and his kingdom isn't enough. We each have to decide how we'll personally respond to his offer of mercy and rescue. Now in the next section of Matthew, we're going to witness the king and his kingdom in action. We've just been hearing about Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom. Now in chapters 8 to 10, we witness the power of that kingdom as it breaks into people's lives. So chapters 8 to 10, here Matthew gathers together nine stories of broken and hurting people whose lives are transformed when they meet Jesus. And he puts them into three groups of three. First of all, he heals a leper, a Roman centurion servant and a sick mother. In the next trio of miracles, he saves his disciples from the st a stormy sea. He delivers two demon-possessed men and he heals a paralysed man. Then in the final three, he heals a dead girl and a sick woman, two blind men and a man who cannot speak. And throughout these different encounters with these different people, we see revealed even more of what kind of king Jesus is. What kind of king he is. He's willing to help anyone and everyone, no matter their ethnicity or background. He brings order and peace into the chaos of broken lives in a broken world. He stoops down low to meet people in their weakness, rescuing even those with the very smallest faith. Wherever he goes, he brings God's reign and banishes the forces of evil. He can heal the sick, cleanse the unclean and raise the dead with a word. And most significantly of all, his passion and his mission is to offer people forgiveness for their sins. And when they receive that forgiveness, he is not ashamed to join the party and celebrate with them, to enter their homes and their lives and sit down to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Now sandwiched quite intentionally between these three groups 
uh, of three miracles are two stories that highlight his call to people to follow him. One of them being Matthew himself. But not everyone is willing to follow, as these chapters also demonstrate. As the message of the kingdom kingdom spreads, it also causes a growing divide. So that while some, like Matthew, drop everything to go with Jesus, others beg him to go back where he came from, chapter 8, verse 34, or even accuse him of being a servant of Satan, chapter 9, verse 34. But Jesus' compassion drives him ever forwards from city to city and village to village as he finds more and more people who are, in the words of chapter 9, verse 36, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The need is great and his compassion is limitless. And so in chapter 10, he commissions his disciples to join him in the mission, to go out as his representatives to tell others too. But even as he sends them, he also prepares them to meet the same opposition as him. And it's the reality of that opposition that leads into the final section that we're going to look at this morning and in our reading this month. In chapters 11 to 13, Matthew illustrates three kinds of responses to Jesus uh, that are starting to emerge. So here we go. Responses to Jesus. Responses to the king. Chapters 11 to 13. First of all, there's the growing opposition from the religious leaders. They are so consumed by their own self-righteousness and have so hardened their hearts against God that they cannot see who it is who's standing right in front of them and they cannot see their need for him. To them, his message that he's come not to call the righteous but sinners is utterly offensive and unthinkable. And Matthew actually paints a powerful contrast in these chapters between the life-sucking yoke of religion that the Pharisees try to impose on people and the life-giving yoke of discipleship that Jesus offers to people when in chapter 11 verse 28 he says, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so as Jesus continues to heal the sick, relieve the oppressed and give rest to the weary, the Pharisees stand against him at every turn and even begin to plot to kill him. The second response, that's the first one, the second response Matthew records is a growing uncertainty in certain people, including Jesus' own family and the now imprisoned John the Baptist. John's question in chapter 11 verse 3 really sums up where he and some others are at. 11 verse 3, John John sends this message. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? The problem they face is that Jesus isn't quite what they're expecting. But Jesus responds by quoting from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 to sum up his ministry so far. This is in chapter 11 verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And the final response to Jesus that Matthew highlights is the growing understanding and faith of his disciples. And as they lean in and listen attentively to him, 
Jesus in chapter 13 presents and unfolds seven parables for them. He begins with the parable of the sower to explain why it is that different people respond so differently to him and to his message. And then he follows with six more parables that reveal even more about the nature of his kingdom and the importance of how people choose to respond to it. So two of the parables illustrate how God has decided that his kingdom will grow from what looks like very small beginnings to something that will one day be so vast it will provide a home and a resting place for all who take refuge in it. Then there are two parables that explain how people's response to Jesus now will affect them on the final day when he returns to judge. And then there are two parables that assure his disciples of the priceless value of the kingdom that they have received in him. And that's really not a bad resting place for us to finish things up this morning and read up to together this month. The overarching message of these first 13 chapters is clear. The kingdom of heaven has arrived in the person and work of Jesus and his kingdom is growing subtly, gradually, yet powerfully and unstoppably. And nothing matters more in all the world than how each of us choose to respond. Will we ignore the king or listen to him? Reject him or receive him? Will we run away from him or run to him to follow him and receive his mercy and grace? Those are the two options, the only two options that lie before each one of us. But only one of them leads to the priceless treasure of chapter 13 verses 44 to 45, where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what Matthew's gospel is here to help us do to see once again, or perhaps discover for the very first time, the hidden treasure of God's kingdom, to find the pearl of greatest price, to fall on our knees and worship the king, the only king who welcomes sinners and gives them rest and peace and life. May God bless us and encourage us this month as we read it together.